0: Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. It's on page 1426 in the brown Bibles in front of you. We're going to read the first eight verses of Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I've been trying to make it as plain as possible to all of us that. What Jesus is describing here in these Beatitudes is extraordinary and world-changing, because he's describing a pattern of faith, a pattern of religion, which is not to be found anywhere else. This, was, this is in the Bible, and in the Bible alone, and essentially you can think of it like this, that if these Beatitudes describe a kind of progression of what it means for a person who has truly come to faith and what God has done in their heart. We're not looking here at what you'd normally associate with religious um, uh, sort of pathways. You know, when people talk about what religion is and they think about, oh, there's all these different roads going up to the top of the mountain. What people assume there is that there is a way of progressing up the mountain, climbing your way up. But what Jesus is describing here is something that seems to be the opposite in its direction. He's portraying here A heart that has been so gripped by the holiness of God, by the sinfulness that we all are aware of in our own lives, and humbled by those things, that you've experienced all of these successive um, transformations, really. A work of God in your heart to make you, as he puts here, poor in spirit. That the first thing anyone needs before they can come to know Jesus is that they will recognize they have no spiritual wealth. They can't claim to be something or to be someone. I know that's a smash in the teeth to everything that people think religion is. Religion is generally personified or typified or described as being the, the home for those who think they are great and think they are powerful and think they are something and who look down on the rest of the world. And what Jesus is describing here is something so completely opposite to that. He's saying the church is the home for those who recognize that they don't actually have it together and that what they do have isn't worth much. You're poor in spirit and then it, it has this kind of trickle effect as more is worked out in you that you become someone who mourns over your sin and becomes meek. becomes willing to recognize your humility before an awesome God and, and begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness and then the effect is you have to be merciful to other people. You can't look down on and judge other people because you know that, that God has done an enormous work in your life to save you. But when we come to this, this, this one in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In a way, we're reaching the kind of the heart, the center of what the Bible teaches about all of this. Because it addresses two of the greatest themes in the Bible. Themes that you and I ought to be consumed with, thinking about, and meditating on. Which are holiness and the knowledge of God. And how those things link together. If you know the story of the scriptures, it begins with a couple who are... Perfectly holy. Now, I think it's a bit of speculation here. I think Adam and Eve were probably um, better looking than Brangelina, you know, smarter than um, Einstein and all the rest of the scientists put together. I think we have every reason to think that God, when he made humankind, made them as per- perfect physical specimens. But it wasn't just that they were amazing. In in that way, they were also Perfectly holy, Which means that they would always want to put the other one first. they would always want to, um, if you had been in their company, they would love you with a totally unfiltered love. There was something um, so endearing and perfect about them. They were totally holy. They didn 't have all the sin which complicates our hearts and our relationships and our, makes us insecure, makes us want to lash out and makes us want to build ourselves up. None of that was true of them. And also. They knew God. Just after they eat the fruit, it says that God was walking in the cool of the day, in the garden, and then he, he's looking for them. And I think we're supposed to infer that it would have been quite a normal thing for them just to bump into into God. It sounds weird, isn't it, when you, when you talk like that, but they'd be like, hey, how's it going? And it'd be a, there's, there's a kind of an informality, not because... They don't see his power and his awesomeness, but because they have nothing to hide or to be ashamed of. And everything crashes down when holiness is lost and when the knowledge of God is lost. And every hunger of the human heart is a hunger that's rooted in those two things, a loss of holiness and a consequent loss of knowing God. Every appetite you have, every lust you have, every longing you have, every daydream you have, every sense that something's not quite right, every depressed emotion you experience. All of these things are signs pointing to the greater issue here, which is that we were born to know the living God. It says in Ecclesiastes that God put eternity into the hearts of men. It means that you weren't meant to live thinking this is it. That what you can do in this life is it, and that's the sum total of it. That there is something more. And so, this beatitude, because it speaks right into those things, in many ways, comes right to the core of what Jesus was offering and promising and talking about when he said, This is what it means to be my disciples. They're the people who are pure in heart. And they see God. But it's also in some ways the hardest. Because I don't know if you've ever spent any time thinking about this. But what did Jesus mean when he said, they'll see God? I don't think it's immediately apparent what he's talking about here. And so I want to begin there and work backwards. And just help us to think a little bit about what it means to see God. And then work back into what it means, what he was preaching for. What he was speaking about when he described purity of heart. And that's where we're going to end up. In a, in a short while. Now, coming back then to this thing, what did Jesus mean when he said they'll see God? We've got to bear in mind, Jesus was an Old Testament scholar. He knew his Hebrew scriptures inside out. He could argue them all day long. From the age of 12, he was reasoning in the synagogues with his superiors, with his men, the teachers of the law, and running circles around them. He knew his Bible. So when he said, they'll see God, it's not as though he could say those words without calling to mind all of these stories in the Bible where men actually seem to have seen God. You think about, I'll just give you three examples. There's a man called Jacob in the book of Genesis. And Jacob has two profound encounters with God. One of them is just after he's cheated his brother Esau and he's on the run and he's, he's fleeing to, to go and stay with his uncle Laban. And he, he falls asleep, puts his head on a rock and he has a dream in which he sees angels going up and down a ladder and he says that God is, is, is on the top of it. And God begins to speak to him and promise him an inheritance and he calls that place Bethel, the house of God. Later on, Just after he's cheated his uncle Laban, he's on the running back from Laban's house towards Esau. And he's caught between um, the devil and the deep blue sea, isn't he? With one guy who hates him at that end and another guy who hates him at this end. And then he meets with God again in the same area or in, in the wilderness on the way. But this time it's different. This time he's wrestling with a man all night long. It's kind of like ultimate fight championship stuff. I'm not into that. I will not pretend I am, but it's, it's kind of like wrestling, like in the dirt, powerful expressions of strength and force all night long, sweaty, hard work, and you think, what on earth is this about? But somehow he knew that he was encountering the divine, and he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And then God dislocates his hip, and he says, uh, and he, he, he leaves him with a limp, and He's blessed. And he calls that place Peniel. I've seen the face of God, he says, and lived. Let's jump forward hundreds of years and we bump into another man called Moses. Now Moses, at this point in the story, he's about 80 years old. And he's a little bit like one of those washed-up celebrities that you see on, on Hello magazine and whatever. He used to be the darling of Egypt. He was the pr- a prince in the land. He, was, he would have had makeup on him. He would have had shaved. <laughs> out, he would have like looked the part. And here he is. He's 80 years old. He's probably not washed for days, if not weeks. He's wearing robes, and he's in the wilderness with some sheep. And then a fire in a bush, and the bush isn't being burned up. And he says, I'm going to turn aside and see this site, a bush that's on fire but isn't burning. And then he encounters God. And God sends him to go and deliver the Israelites. That's one bookend of his life. At the other end, he's led the Israelites out of of Egypt, the great exodus. And they've been... It's kind of a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. These people, one minute they love God, the next minute they're making golden calves and worshipping them. And Moses has another profound encounter with the living God. When God says, you can't see my face because no one can see me and live, but he says, I'll, I'll let you see my back. And he hides him in a rock and he goes past and somehow Moses has such an encounter with God that when he comes down from the mountain to see the people, it says in Exodus 34 that his, mouth, his face was shining and no one could look at him because he had this kind of this effervescent glory just, just, just radiating from his face. Let's jump forward hundreds of years later and we come into another, bump into another man called Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet and he's alive at the time of a king called Uzziah. And it says, In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And it said the train of his robe. In other words, the, kind of, the part of your robe which, which trails behind you, it filled the whole temple. And Isaiah is overcome with fear and he cries out, Woe is me. And then God gives him a mission and tells him to speak, and he does. And you read the book of Isaiah, and you think, man, this guy encountered God like no one else. He began the stuff he prophesied about the coming Jesus, about the line that Jesus would come from, about what Jesus would accomplish, about who Jesus would be—that he would be mighty God, Prince of Peace, and all these things—and how he would die and why he would die. And it all comes back to that encounter when he had with the Father or with. Actually, I think with Jesus in the temple, because he calls him Lord Adonai rather than Yahweh. Anyway, I digress. The question then is, when Jesus was saying, they'll see God, and he has all these stories in his head as he's speaking this, was he saying to normal Christians like you and me that this should be our expectation? And I think that one side of that is the obvious answer, no. These guys were obviously unique in history, and the stuff that they encountered was a little bit special. But and the other flip side of that is that for anyone who lives on this side of the cross, on this side of the coming of Jesus, we know what the Bible tells us is that in some ways you are better off than all of these men that I've been telling stories about. Jesus said that there was no one greater, Matthew eleven, than John the Baptist. He's saying of all the prophets, and he's lining them all up in his mind. He's thinking of Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, John the Baptist. He said John the Baptist is the absolute greatest. And then he says the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. And I think he means this, that when you become a Christian, no matter how weak your faith, no matter how wavering and doubtful and often you feel sinful your life is. He says, you have more privileges than John the Baptist had who died before he saw the coming of all that Jesus promised. So in one sense, it means this, that all of the experiences that they had were meant to mean something to to Christians. And if they had something wonderful, you can have something better. That's what I would infer from it. Which makes, makes us think, well, what then was the meaning of these encounters? What is it that these encounters were all about, that these men in the Old Testament had? And I would want to sum it up like this, that they were, they were transformative encounters. That God didn't just randomly drop into people's lives just for the fun of it and just for a magic show. He did it to change men. Think back on on those examples that I gave you. When Jacob met with God, both those times, he's on the run from either man. He's a swindler. His name means swindler. The name Jacob or James, it means swindler. He's a trickster. And God has to deal with him because he's going to be the father of of the Israelite people. He's got to change his character. He's got to deal with him. And Jacob is humbled to the ground as he wrestles with this angel and the angel leaves him with a permanent limp. It's like a physical mark of God saying, I've had dealings with you. You think about Moses, as I said. There he was, in many ways, a kind of washed up failure. He'd been... At the age of 40, he tried to deliver the Israelites. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. He tried. He'd, he'd given his first effort at trying to do something to stand up for the rights of his people. And it had all gone so badly wrong, he'd run scared. Like a, I won't say like what. He'd just run away into the wilderness. And Pharaoh was going to put him to death if he stayed. So 40 years on from that, he's now 80. The guy has no prospect of ever doing anything interesting from here on. It's just sheep and and wilderness for the rest of his life, and then God meets with him. And by that point, he's lost all of his confidence. The same man who grew up in the palace is now a, almost a quivering wreck. He won't even go back to fulfill his commission because he's, he's nervous, that, that, that he can't speak properly, that he's going to stammer, and that people aren't going to listen to a word he says, because he doesn't speak forcefully and eloquently. You think about Isaiah. i already talked to you about some of the encounters he had, that encounter he had with the the Lord in the temple and how it left an imprint on his mind that he saw more clearly than anyone else before Jesus what Jesus would be about. And yet, look at it from our perspective. In a way, you are Jacob when you've met with God. Anybody who's met with God as a Christian... Has been left with a limp. If, you've, if these Beatitudes describe anything about you, they describe the fact that God has had to humble you, or else you're not a Christian at all. If you're a Christian, then in a sense you're, you're Moses as well. Because the life that you once lived, you've died to, and it was a life that was full of all these hopes, dreams, and ambitions. And some of them you've still held. Some of them that fizzled out already. But regardless of all that, God has met you and he's recommissioned you like he recommissioned Moses. And he's given you a new destiny just as he gave Moses a destiny. And just as Moses' destiny was about saving souls, so Jesus has now set you apart to be his person whose, whose chief mission in the world is to make more disciples of Jesus. You're Moses. You're Isaiah. Except... Here's the difference between you and Isaiah. You know more than Isaiah did. So you might think, wow, Isaiah, what a privileged guy. He had all that encounter with Jesus in the temple. No, his privilege doesn't even come close to your privilege. He may have had fleeting glimpses of what this Savior was going to be like and what he would do. Sure, he had more clarity than most. But even Isaiah's encounter with God doesn't come close to what it means. When you can say thank you Jesus for dying for me. It's a past historical event for you. You are more privileged than all of these guys put together. You may not feel it, but I want you to see that this is part of what Jesus is saying, that you can see God. You have all these privileges, but wrapped up in what it means to be a child of God. Now for us, This promise that you can see God is something then that we live with as something both future and present. And I say that because, just very briefly in terms of the future, the New Testament tells us that Christians will one day be confronted with Jesus and it will be a transforming encounter, just as we've been talking about. It says in 1 John 3, Beloved, we're God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. Do you remember how C.S. Lewis put it that if, if you were to see what you'll become in the new creation, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship. He says, what we'll be has not yet appeared. We've not yet walked into the fullness of what it means to be the children of God. We've not been changed to the full. But he says, but we know that when he, that is when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because, why? We shall see him as he is. Now that, in a nutshell, is is what it means to see God. To see God, to see Christ, is to be changed by him. You can't encounter him and remain the same. And when you see him more fully, you're changed more completely. And when you see him in perfection, when Jesus comes again, all of the stuff that you hate about yourself is no longer going to be an issue. Can you imagine what that will feel like? To no longer wake up on Monday morning and think, oh, flipping heck, I've already overslept. (laughs) And it's only Monday. You know, what will it feel like when you're doing your work? And I believe that there will be work in the new creation. Why wouldn't there be? God made us to work. It's fulfilling. It's beautiful. It's joyful. Some of the time. (laughs) What would it be like when you no longer procrastinate because you hate your work, or you find your work frustrating, or you're afraid of your work. What will it be like when you just launch into it and say, Thank you God, this is awesome, and you've got amazing work to do, and all of the sin that held you back is gone. What will it be like when you, when you, you meet people in the street, and no longer are you scared of people and you avoid eye, eye contact with them, or freaked out when they say hello. But there's just an openness and a transparency and a love for people when they're no longer objects as well. And you're not like assessing people when you walk down the street on a scale of one to ten on how hot they are. Imagine what it'll be like when we're freed from all of this rubbish in the human heart. What will it be like when we can see the stuff that people have and no longer want it for ourselves, but celebrate that they have it? What will it be like when all this sin just goes away and it's no longer a strain? To live. You're no longer fighting with your own body. You're no longer fighting with your own will. You're no longer exhausted from the strain of it. That's perfection. And he says, when we see him, we'll become like him because we'll see him as he is. You'll have a completely unfiltered view of Jesus. Now that's something that should excite you if you're a Christian and fill you with dread if you're not. Because Jesus is the dividing line. He divided history and he divides humanity. He asks everyone, what do you make of me? Now this isn't just something though that Christians think about as future. We also understand it to be something that we are engaged with presently. Let me explain. Paul took up some of these ideas that I've been trying to explain to you about how Christians have a greater privilege that we can see something more clearly now than Moses saw, uh, even in his profound encounters with God. In 2 Corinthians 3, for example, he talks about it. I won't read all the verses, but he says that uh, whenever Moses is read, there's a veil that lies over, over their hearts. In other words, it was only a cloudy view of what God is that they had when they had just Moses' writings. But he says, when When someone turns to the Lord, when someone turns to Jesus, he says, The veil is removed. And he goes on to say that we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is what it means to be changed by God it's to see Jesus more clearly as you grow in deeper, deeper knowledge of him in your Christian walk, and for that sight, to become transformation in you. And what we will want taste in the future. In fullness and perfection and completeness. Is something that we are experiencing in a gradual way. Even now as Christians. Does Jesus fill your vision? Does he consume your thoughts? Is he in your eyes? Is he... What you are looking at. Because the more it's true of you, the more you become like him. That's what the Bible says. And, friends, this isn't something that any of us feel we've arrived with in any sense. In fact, it's something that we press on for more of. Isn't that what is said in the psalm? That such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You could put it this way, that we're the generation who, who need to be seeking the face of Christ, who want to be looking at him, understanding him, knowing him, loving him, worshipping him, and experiencing his transforming power in our lives. What is it that you are looking at? Now, in the Beatitudes, let's just remember how it's put. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And in there, there's this this sort of exhortation, this challenge, that we as Christians need to be people who are pure in heart. What does that mean? Three things. First of all, I think it means this, that we have sincere hearts. It doesn't mean perfection. Jesus isn't talking here about people who consider themselves to be perfect. Perfect. In 1 John 1 it says, if, you, if anyone says that he's without sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. If you think that you're sinless, then you are, you're just compounding your sin with more sin by being a liar. It's not perfection. And so we bump into this kind of a paradox, don't we? Is it the case that seeing God makes us holy? Or is it that we have to be holy in order to see God? And I think the only answer that I can be satisfied with is both. That God wants people who in one sense are already in pursuit of him and they have a greater revelation of him. But that revelation then changes them. And so it's a wonderful cyclical thing. This is how, just coming back to the psalm, it seems to me to be written. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, he says. And then he starts talking about holy people, clean hands, pure hearts. But then he brings it back around and says... He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the clean come into God's presence, but when they're in God's presence, they're made clean. It's a weird paradox, isn't it? But in a way, it just sums up what Christianity is about that God wants to make you clean, to encounter Him, and as you encounter Him, He makes you even more clean. It's a wonderful promise of the gospel. So when we talk here about what is it that Jesus is talking about, pure hearts, I think the first thing is sincere hearts, but we're not talking about perfection. We're talking rather about the absence of hypocrisy. As we begin to delve more into the Sermon on the Mount, I can promise you this, that you are going to be squirming in your seats, just as I'll be squirming in my, at my desk all week preparing for what we're looking at in Jesus' sermon here. Because he hits hard against the sin of hypocrisy. That you can in some way um, try and live a life that looks and appears like you are wanting to be godly, but in your heart nurturing all kinds of ugly stuff. And Jesus always constantly preached that true righteousness is something that comes from the heart. On one occasion, a little bit later in Matthew 15... He gets questioned about why it is that his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat, because that was the tradition of the elders. And Jesus says, you've replaced the commandments of God with all your stupid traditions, basically. And then he says, where does sin come from? It doesn't come from how clean or dirty your hands are, by which he meant. You can't assess the quality of of what's happening in your life just by your outward conduct. He said these things flow from inside the heart and then he begins to explain. He says that whatever comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So when Jesus is saying here blessed are the pure in heart, he's saying that the kinds of people that he is wanting to form are people who whose godliness is not just an outward performance you know, I, I do my quiet time or I go to church or I give my money. All wonderful, great things to do. But it's not just that. It's that your heart has been arrested by Christ and you've been changed and even your very desires are being changed. That as Paul puts it in Romans 6, that you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that we've received. That, and that you've understood that this, this is heart obedience that Christ wants not nurturing ugliness inside you. And once more, this is not perfection that Jesus is describing here. That would rule us all out. And in a sense, this sincere heart is a heart that is fully aware of its own failure and willing to acknowledge that to God. In Matthew 23, when Jesus is attacking the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, one of the ways, it's an amazing chapter, and you should spend time just reading it through slowly. But let me just zoom in on, on two verses. He says, in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-five, he calls them hypocrites, because he says, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup. And elsewhere, he says, you're like whitewashed sepulchres, graves. That outside, your life looks rosy and prim and ordered and perfect, but inside, at the core of your heart, there is death. And friends, that is the best that religion can ever offer a person. A transformation of your outer conduct, but it cannot change your heart. So when we talk here about what a pure heart is, and we say it's a sincere heart, part of that, if it's not perfection, is this. That it's, it's a willingness to let to be transparent before God and to allow Him to come and change your heart. A.W. Pink put it this way, that our Christian reader, the truth is, one of the most conclusive evidences that we do possess a pure heart is to be conscious and burdened with the impurity which still indwells us. The part of what it means to have this sincere pure heart is that you are conscious of what of how God needs to change you, and not just aware of it in the kind of, I'm walking away from God and I know I'm doing the wrong way, but aware of it in, in the sense that you're constantly bringing it back to God and saying, you're pleading with God, you're praying with God, change me, free me, transform me, clean me up from the inside. If you're conscious that you are struggling with sin, have you come to Jesus in desperation and kept praying about the stuff that you want to be clean from? That's the first thing, a sincere heart. Secondly, an unpolluted heart. If we flip back into Psalm 24, the psalm I read at the start, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I'm quite certain this is what Jesus had in mind when he, when he, when he uh, created this beatitude. And then he says, Who does not lift his, up his soul to what is false. What is he talking about there? He's talking about one of the blanket ways the Bible describes sin as idolatry. We're all worshippers. We all put things on the throne. What is it that you desire? What is it that you dream about or daydream about? What is it that you're ambitious for? What is it that you say, I can't live without this? What is it that you're most afraid of losing? I think our human hearts have the capacity to turn anything into an idol. Even the wonderful good things God gives us. You think about something like marriage. There are married couples who have wonderful marriages. But the great flaw in the marriage is that they're so dependent on the other. that If the one of the other them were to be taken away, their whole life would crumble. And that was never God's intention that your spouse would take the place of Jesus. You think about our jobs. It's wonderful to feel like we're getting along in the world, isn't it? And to be affirmed and encouraged in the things that we do well. And jobs are an important part of that. But would your life crumble if you lost it or if you received a bad review from one of your superiors? A lot of people... Are, are sent into spins of depression and frustration when, when they don't have work. Or when they lose it. Or when they're not doing as well as they hoped they would do. We can turn anything into an idol. And Jesus comes back to this a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount in the context of giving and in the context of money. And he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. This is in chapter 6, 22. And he says it in between a paragraph talking about not laying up treasures on earth, on earth, and another paragraph saying, don't worship mammon instead of God. You've got to choose one or the other, either money or God. Don't worship both. You can't worship both. And right in the middle he says this, listen carefully, he says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What does he mean? He means this, that whatever it is that you are looking at in life is a thing that you are worshipping. I mean it metaphorically, of course. The stuff that fills your vision. It might be as simple as, Whatever it is that's filling up your Amazon wish list or whatever it is that you're searching for and, and you put on your favorites on, your, on your, um, your web browser. It can be simple things like that or it could be the, the, the years-long ache you've had to find a spouse or to do this with your life or it could be the very simple thing of just wanting more stuff. Paul explicitly talks about Covetousness as being idolatry, twice, once in Ephesians 5 and once in Colossians 3, when he just explicitly um, draws the two things together. Let me just read to you Colossians 3. He says, Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now he's just basically echoing what Jesus is saying. The eye is the lamp of the body. What you are looking at is either a created thing or the creator. It's either, if it's a created thing, then your life, your soul will be full of darkness because the only light created things have is a reflected light from God who made them and gave them to you in the first place. So if your life is trying to find fulfillment from the stuff of this earth, which Paul here calls covetousness, wishing you could have. (coughs) then your body, your soul is going to be full of darkness. That's idolatry. How do we overcome it? Psalm 24 again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Idolatry is killed by acknowledgement that every good thing comes from God. Which means that you neither worship it, or runs so hard against it that it's still controlling your life, you just receive things with gratitude. And you thank God when other people have stuff that you don't have, whether it's the career you wished you'd had, the achievements, the wife, the husband, the possessions. I hope you don't want someone else's wife or husband, but you know what I mean. (laughs) The possessions, whatever it is. Jesus wants to be at the center of your vision. He demands it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Another way of saying it is just, blessed are those who look at me, because they'll see me. Having unpolluted hearts. Sincere hearts, unpolluted hearts, finally focused hearts. It's not really that much different from what I've already said, but I think it just helps bring things to a little bit more clarity. In those verses where he said, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What it literally says is this if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. He means you don't have a wandering eye in a spiritual sense. You know how that expression is used in marriage, that if a husband has a wandering eye, he's looking and comparing other women. Well, I think that's exactly the sense that's implied here. If your eye is single, if Jesus is what you want, and you recognize that your satisfaction, your joy comes from Him, that He's in charge of your life, that He'll give you what you need, if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. One writer put it this way, the single-minded who are free from the tyranny of a divided self Christ doesn't want people who, as it's put in James chapter 1, who are tossed by every wind and wave because they're conflicted people. They don't know what they want. He wants you as a Christian to know exactly what you want and to want Him. He wants you to run after Him, to pursue Him, to make Him the Lord of your life. A focused heart. It's put like this in Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. To fear your name. In other words, do away with all this division in my heart. That part of me wants this and part of me wants that. And one minute I'm running after this, and the next I'm running after that. Unite my heart to fear your name. And I think another way of putting it is like this: the Christians ought to aim to be very simple people. I don't mean stupid. I mean, your life should have a simplicity to it that it's about one thing. It's not that complicated. We overcomplicate it. Blessed are the pure in heart, united heart, single eye. It's all about Jesus, for they shall see God. If I could put it another way, it just means this. You love Jesus. You love him with a vigorous, heart-wrenching, life-transforming, wild passion. He is the Lord of your life. He is everything to you. He is your hero. He is your king. He is your priest. He is your savior. He is your friend. He is your brother. He is the one you want. He is the one you live for. He's what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning and allows you to go to sleep in peace at night. Jesus is everything. You put anything else in the place of Jesus, you'll get to the end of your life and think, well, what was all that about? But when Christ is your life, death is a bonus because you get to go and be with him. (laughs) Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God.